So we are Chop Shop Economics. We read this shit so you don't have to. And today on our show, we have the renowned privacy organizer, writer, uh, Corey Doctor on the show. Uh, do you want to tell us about yourself? Sure. Uh, I do a lot of different stuff, but I'm a science fiction novelist, and I've worked for 19 years with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is a digital human rights organization in San Francisco. Uh, I'm Canadian and British and live just outside of Los Angeles and Burbank. Uh, my The things that I focus on are um, monopolism, interoperability, uh, technological self-determination, and the economic issues around it. I, I grew up in a very lefty household. My, my folks are Trotskyist organizers, uh, and um, I uh, acquired my interest in both politics and technology from them, especially my dad, who's also a computer scientist. And I'm, uh, I'm on the faculty at the Open University uh, in the computer science department in the UK, and at UNC in the Library Science Department, and I'm a research affiliate at the MIT Media Lab. Yeah. Awesome. And it's great having you on today. Uh, thanks for coming on down to our little um, GarageBand uh, podcast. Um, Thank you. Like, we have our other guest, our other co-hosts on the show. We have the renowned Miss Silver. Can you just give us a little blurb on your background, Miss Silver? It's nothing nearly so illustrious. I mean, like, you, you know um, a lot about tech. <laughs> You're the tech person. Yeah, I mean, I'm... I mean, I'm a computer science student. Um, I mean, you know, grew up near the spaceport. My um, was very interested in tech from an early age. Um, became an anarchist when I was 17. <laughs> So, <laughs> I mean, that's that's my background. Um, so, yeah, of course. And then we have, uh, you know, Doc Spider on the show. Um, do you want to tell us about your background? Yeah, so the short version is I'm the one who's dedicated, like, a bit more time than I probably should have to um, the brain-melting process of studying modern finance and how uh, modern Wall Street black magic, also known as derivatives, um, came into existence, um, which has been a really fun PhD so far. Um, and I've been pretty much an anarchist since Occupy and doing various bits and stuff here and there before coming on the podcast, so... When I'm and, not, you know, scrambling my brain with financial weirdness. <laughs> there is a lot of financial weirdness. And I am your other co-host, Harley Quinn. Um, I am a Sephardi Jewish leftist. I've been involved in organizing for a long time. Um, I've read a lot of history and philosophy. Um, and I, like, I think, you know, the Marxist quote around, you know, the point of philosophy is not to interpret the world, but to change it. And I think this is a very important time. Like, I don't think philosophy should be something that we keep up locked in the ivory tower. I think it's something that we can use for our, like, common mutual liberation. And I would describe, like, my current, like, polit political orientation right now as a council communist. So I have sympathies 
with a lot of other leftist tendencies. But, you know, anyhow, we have Cory Doctorow today on the show, and it's a pleasure to have you, Cory. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure as well. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So I guess a good place to start is somewhere that's pretty familiar to everybody, especially in time of COVID. Like, pretty much all of our viewers and probably, like, everyone and their dog at some point or another has purchased something on Amazon, if nothing else, because we're kind of forced to buy COVID and lockdowns and everything else. So, and there's also been a bit coming out about things like, you know, Alexa listening to people's private conversations and stuff. And just wondering, Corey, if you could go into that a bit more and how much of, from what you know, could you say is Amazon's business running on Alexa listening to you fap? Yeah, I, I, I don't think that's what Amazon's business is, is running on. In fact, I think what you're, what you're getting at here is a really important distinction uh, between the way that we think about what the tech companies do with surveillance and, and how they actually use surveillance. So you, you may have encountered the idea of surveillance capitalism, which, you know, uh, in, its, in the um, uh, description of Shoshana Zuboff, who adapted it for her book in the age of surveillance capitalism, as well as some scholarly work around it, is a kind of new capitalism. She calls it a rogue capitalism. And it's one that exists rather than by um, having markets that notionally aggregate uh, decisions from around the margins, you know, what people are willing to buy and what they're willing to pay for them and what they're willing to sell and what they're willing to take for it. Instead, surveillance capitalism uses uh, data to and automated um, systems to manipulate our opinions and to manipulate our views. And so rather than using capitalism as a kind of vast sensor array that discovers what we all want and processes it. Instead, it becomes a kind of vast actuator where what we want is, is uh, what we're told to want by the system. And, and the important thing about this is that it's just the inversion of what Amazon and other big tech companies promise uh, when they're going out and making sales calls, right? If you're Google or Amazon or Facebook, you tell your customers... If you pay us, we can convince people to buy your products using data. And so it takes at face value these very self-interested claims about how effective their own products are. It's, it's really, you know, when you, when you see what Maria Farrell calls the prodigal tech bros, the people who used to work on this and now regret it and, and are sounding the alarm about the risks of having our opinions manipulated by algorithms when you see them claim to have been evil geniuses, it's important not to lose track of the fact that they're still calling themselves geniuses, that there's, that this is a kind of humble brag. Uh, when, when you say, well, I'm so good at using data to manipulate you that I invented a mind control ray to sell your nephew fidget spinners. And then I gave it to Robert Mercer so he could make your uncle a racist. And I think that, that, um, these claims, uh, are should be viewed very skeptically and that moreover there's there's a much simpler version of the story that explains how amazon gets to dominate and how google and facebook and apple get to dominate which is that they use some of the 
specific characteristics of technology, and they're important, they're different from the characteristics of railroads or telephones or the other things that have come before us. They use the specific characteristics of digital technology combined with the absolutely standard tactics of the monopolist to uh, enact uh, or, or, or to create kind of corrals or, or, or maybe the word I'm looking for is canals right? Things that you can't escape, right? That w funnels that you are driven into, not because they've stripped you of your free will and you don't notice that the only way to get many things now that retail has collapsed in your neighborhood is Amazon and you just find yourself ordering from Amazon because it's, it's just like it, they brainwashed you, but rather where you're deprived of alternatives. And so you, you end up arranging your affairs to benefit their shareholders. So it's true that Alexa does capture some incidental speech, and it's really creepy, right? That the, you know, Amazon. One of the ways that Amazon uh, can make lots of money is by distorting policy, and one of the policies they've distorted is our policy around having to be truthful. So Amazon says Alexa only wakes up when you say it's wake word, when you say "Hey Alexa," but that's not true because for Alexa to hear its wake word, it has to be listening. Right, so so what they mean is we have a highly specialized version of listening to you, which which is um, what happens after you say the wake word. But there's this other version of listening to you that's just always listening to you, and when you say a thing that Alexa interprets as its wake word, maybe you actually say the word Alexa because you have a friend called Alexa, or maybe you say one of hundreds of phrases that have been shown to reliably wake up Alexa, depending on your accent and which language your Alexa is located to, Alexa starts capturing your speech. And then one of the things that Amazon lies about is what happens to that speech, because Amazon tells us that all of the speech is processed by, you know, sort of machines of loving grace, right? Untouched by human hands, that somewhere out there, a deep learning algorithm is taking apart and putting back together your speech and trying to interpret it, and that there isn't, like, a boiler room full of perverts fapping to your Alexa. And in fact, there are boiler rooms full of, not perverts, but, like, brutally exploited subcontractors all over the world who are tasked with listening to Alexa output that's been randomly sampled as a way of identifying errors and um, hand recoding it so that they can improve the algorithm. And you put those two things together and what you end up with is a bunch of randos, right? Contractors for contractors for contractors of Amazon who listen to a bunch of audio you never know is being captured, much of which is really disturbing, right? You know, th those contractors have been victimized by having to listen to uh, violent uh, spousal abuse, uh, by having to listen to racist diatribes, all kinds of things that really like shouldn't have happened in the first place and unsuspecting people shouldn't be forced to listen to in order to, to, to pay their bills. And so, you know, under, under uh, the, the kind of dominant theory of capitalism, companies aren't allowed to lie about what they do. But Amazon and other giant companies, because they extract these monopoly rents, because they, they own so many different parts of the vertical supply chain that delivers products to you, they can mobilize those monopoly rents to make it legal for them to tell lies. And so now you have products that do things that are harmful to their users and the workers who are responsible for helping those products function in an orderly way. And... 
we're lied to about how the products work and Amazon gets to tell the lie and you know rake in the profits that derive from deceiving people about how the products work and then they can reinvest those those uh, gains into monopolizing other sectors and distorting more policy and that looks a lot more like how all monopolists work and a lot less like a mind control ray even though there's some really specific technological aspects that you should understand in order to understand the whole picture it's a lot closer to the idea that Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg and Tim Cook and Steve Jobs and so on are just like the same mediocre sociopaths that we got rid of with Andrew Mellon and, and Rockefeller and not super geniuses who have turned their genius to evil. I think like one of the things I find very interesting, there's like multiple threads here that like you're drawing upon. Like, first of all, like I think how what you're describing is very much like encompassed by what uh, Guillaume de Luz talks about in the society as a control. Like, in disciplinary, in disciplinary societies, the individual passes from one closed environment to another. The family, the school, the barracks, the factory. Now, societies of control operating with computers are replacing disciplinary societies. Enclosures are molds, but controls are a modulation that continuously change. Perpetual training replaces the school, and continuous control replaces the examination. The numerical language of control is made up of codes that allow or disallow access information. We no longer deal with the mass individual pair. Individuals have become divisuals, samples, data, markets, or banks. The operation of markets is now the instrument of social control, short-term and rapid, but also continuous and without limit, while discipline was of long duration and infinite and discontinuous. It's like, it's interesting to connect that with what you're saying because like, it's not that they have this like mind control ray. It's that like you're getting this like uh, the surveillance capitalism is slowly building up this like body of the um, of like of AI under uh, Amazon, under Google, under all these different tech companies. It doesn't mean that we have like Skynet waiting in the wings, but it's more of like uh, you know we're starting to see like these different parts of the capitalist system becoming more networked. And like this is the result of like the capitalist system becoming much more networked than it has been in the past. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I, I, I think that, you know, the, the intrinsic tension with technology, and this is where I want to, like where it actually matters how digital technology works and why it's different from, say, railroads, is that technology, uh, digital technology, is built on digital computers, and digital computers have this characteristic of being universal, right? They are, um, they, uh, a Turing complete computer can run all the programs that we can express in symbolic logic. And so that means that the oldest computers that they built at the Princeton Institute and the most modern computers that you get shipped to you as like embedded systems in your printer ink heads or as part of your smartwatch, they all are in some important way functionally equivalent and can run the same programs. Although a modern computer might be able to run a program in an eye blink that an ancient computer would have taken a billion years to execute. But they can still, like, theoretically execute these programs. And, and why that's different and why that matters in terms of this understanding of self-determination and locking in gains from uh, early wins in, in markets is that um, it means that you can always make new things that talk to the old things. 
And so the network effects and the other economic advantages that accrue to early winners in this, in this lottery, in this casino of the market, those network effects can be undone. So compare railroads, right? In the, in the 19th century, Australian robber barons each aspired to creating their own railroad empire in Australia. And to exclude their rivals, they all laid their tracks at different widths, at different gauges. It's a thing that the Australians call the multi-gauge muddle. And over the intervening century and a half, there have been hundreds of attempts to build a rail car that can retract one set of wheels and drop another set of wheels when it reaches the interface of one rail network and the other. And it turns out that the most reliable, cost-effective way to fix this is to actually tear out thousands of kilometers of rail and lay new rail beds and new railroads at a standard gauge because it's just really hard to make a rail car that runs on more than one gauge. But then think about how digital technology works. You know, there was a moment where, say, Microsoft dominated the enterprise office world. Um, and one of the ways that they dominated it was that they had tied their operating system to their word processor, spreadsheet, and, and um, uh, presentation tools, PowerPoint, Word, and, and Excel. And although they nominally made a version for their primary rival for the Mac, it was cursed. So like if you were like the only designer in an accounting shop and so you had the sole Mac and one of your colleagues sent you a Word file and you opened it and saved it again, they would never be able to read that file again. You may never be able to read that file again. It was uh, such an incredibly low reliability piece of software, even by Microsoft's very low standards, that it's hard to believe that it wasn't deliberately sabotaged. And the way that Apple addressed that was not by Bill Gates, you know, arm wrestling with, with Steve Jobs until he agreed to make a, a decent version of Office for the Mac. Steve Jobs just paid some engineers to go and reverse engineer the file formats of the Office suite. And in the early 2000s, they released a product called iWork that has uh, Calc, uh, uh, Pages, and Keynote in it that can read and write those Microsoft file formats. And what that meant is that what had previously been a kind of walled garden, right, where all the Microsoft users were corralled in, became a kind of feedlot. You know, Apple started to run these ads, the Switch ads, where they said, are, do you hate using Windows, but are you stuck because all your files are locked up in Windows file formats? You can just use a Mac. And, and that Mac will read and write all your files. And so what had been an exclusive audience that was owned by Microsoft became a potential audience for Apple. And so this created a different equilibrium where there was actually rather a lot of dynamism and there was competition and and where there was an element of, of uh, what's best about consumerism. So, you know, the origins of the consumerist movement uh, with, with Nader and Perg were rooted in the observation that political change is slow but that uh, groups of, of consumers or groups of humans could get, gather together and exert consumer pressure by choosing to buy things or not to buy things or organizing boycotts or what have you. And in markets where firms were worried about losing their, their customers, this actually did change the conduct of large firms that were otherwise seemingly immune to being regulated, that were very good at playing a regulatory game, but not so good at just convincing you that you had to stay within their within their domain, with, that you had to keep arranging your affairs to benefit their shareholders. And, and what's happened in the intervening years is that companies like Apple, but also Microsoft and Facebook and Google, have enacted 
A suite of technological measures to prevent this kind of reverse engineering interoperability, but those technological measures don't work very well, right? Like, it's not hard to make a third-party inkjet head that will work with an HP printer. It's not hard to make uh, a phone that can read and write uh, or, or that, can, that can run apps that come from iOS. Um, what they've done at the same time is they've mobilized their monopoly rents, right? The excess rents that they extract by not having to fear competitors because of these technological countermeasures and use them to buy legal countermeasures that take the stuff that they did and makes it illegal for other people to do it to them. And so this has created this, um, this kind of paradox right now where when you talk about Amazon or Apple or Facebook or Google, people say, well, if you don't like them, don't use them. And the reality is that you can't not use them, right? That, that consumerism is now a dead letter because to view yourself purely as a market actor and not as a political actor who has a legitimate stake in, in the way that our uh, world is regulated, that, that firms are allowed to conduct themselves, that products are designed, that, that safety rules are, are arrived at, and so on, if you just see yourself as like an ambulatory wallet doling out or, or withholding money, then over time what you'll end up with is the monopolization that means that you're not an ambulatory wallet. Instead, you're, you're kind of like inconvenient gut flora for immortal transhuman colony organizations called limited liability companies who, who just get to like use you or flush you in ways that make sense to them, even if it's, you know, severely detrimental to you. Well, I'm looking at like these like countermeasures that you're talking about and just all the effort that these companies are going to do to keep this level of control in place, like how much would you say, like say Amazon, for example, like depends on having this kind of monopoly control? Like could their business as it is structured work if there was serious, hypothetically serious competition for yeah. like web services or delivery or what have you? Yeah, so that that's a great question, and it really relates to rents, rentierism, and rent seeking. And um, you know, in the in the early theory theorization of of capitalism and markets, people like Adam Smith called markets free when they were free from economic rents, right? Not when they were free from regulation, but when they were free from sort of parasitic uh, entities whose only contribution to production was owning something like the land underneath the factory, but who could nevertheless siphon off some of the gains from the factory's production to themselves. And he said, markets aren't free when you have, when you have rentiers. And so a free market is a market that's free from rentiers. And what we've had in the years since is a complete reversal, where we call markets free only if they are free from regulation, free to extract rent within. And along with that reversal is a reversal of what we mean by rent-seeking. So prior to the kind of University of Chicago uh, rise and rise about 40 years ago, when we talked about rent-seeking, we talked about it as a suite of activities undertaken by rentiers, by, by people who own stuff instead of doing stuff, in order to uh, maximize their returns from owning stuff. And some of that was... Um, uh, like buying up your competitors and shutting them down. So everyone has to rent from you instead of renting from someone else who might be able to 
uh, offer a lower rent, who might compete with you and drive rents down. And some of it was was seeking regulation, was was finding uh, regulators who um, were sympathetic to you and getting them to make rules that only you could follow, but that your competitors couldn't, you know. Uh, and so you'll often hear today, uh, when we talk about, about rent-seeking, that's the only part that we talk about. And you'll hear right-wingers talk about things like occupational licensure as an example of rent-seeking, where you'll have a cartel of women who braid hair, and they will insist on 1,300 hours of apprenticeship before you can be licensed to braid hair. And what that does is artificially suppresses the um, pool of hair braiders, and that, that buoys up the wage of hair braiders. And first of all, that's an incomplete account of why we use occupational licensure. We use it to make sure that people understand hygiene and also the praxis or the work that goes into it, and also the, the uh, overall responsibilities to the community, record-keeping, whatever. But, but also, this contraction of, the, of what we mean by rent-seeking to large firms corrupting monopolists lends itself to a natural remedy, which is to get rid of, uh, or large firms corrupting uh, regulators, which is to get rid of the regulators, right? So this is like the end point, is um, if you allow regulators to regulate monopolists, the monopolists will suborn the regulators to maintain their monopoly. And since monopolists are considered to be themselves kind of a, a good, it, it not efficient in and of themselves by these market theorists, then really that what we need to do is not just have forbearance that allows monopolists, but do away with regulators altogether, lest the monopolists turn the good, efficient monopoly into an inefficient monopoly by by suborning their regulators to prevent other market entrants from, from participating. So back to Amazon. Amazon really is a rent seeker, right? Amazon really has suborned its regulators. So it gets to misclassify many of its workers, right? A huge piece of Amazon's uh, profit margin arises from worker misclassification and classifying uh, workers as independent contractors, which means that it doesn't have to meet occupational health and safety or uh, paid leave or um, uh, you know minimum wage and minimum standards rules, as well as pension obligations and so on. So Amazon would not be in profit if it wasn't able to uh, to, to, to rent seek, right? To, to create regulatory loopholes that allow it but not its competitors to do that because, you know, I live here in Burbank, California. I have a great local bookstore. They fill, you know, orders when people want to buy like a signed copy of one of my books for Christmas. You go to them. They're called Dark Delicacies. I just walk over and sign the book. Dark Delicacies doesn't get to misclassify its employees. If Dark Delicacies misclassifies its employees and doesn't pay them a minimum wage and doesn't guarantee them occupational health and safety, then they face severe penalties. So what Amazon has done really is rent-seeking, right? They, they have really secured a loophole that applies to them, but not to their smaller rivals, which strengthens their monopoly and gives them more capital to spend on other rent-seeking rules. And, you know, it's like that all the way up and down. So, you know, Amazon is able, for example, to occupy, to, to um, offer and create these two-sided markets, uh, which is another word for saying a market where uh, or a game where the referee uh, is playing against both of the teams. So the way to think about a two two-sided market is like as a as an hourglass. And on one side you have customers and on the other side you have suppliers and in the middle you have the market maker who is the referee whose job is to make sure that the suppliers and the uh, and their customers 
all you know transact fairly right that they leave each other fair reviews that they don't cheat each other that they accurately label things that they pay for the things that they get and so on but in these two-sided markets the referee is also sometimes a supplier and also sometimes a customer and so they're making rules and enforcing rules selectively so that they can extract as much money as possible from either side of the hourglass and they take the excess capital they get from running the hourglass and they and they use it to lobby for more hourglass flavor uh, favorable rules um, you know so for example uh, lobbying for it to be lawful for them to clone the products of their own suppliers and then um, and then put them into the market and preference them when people search for them so you search for a suitcase and you know what brand name you're looking for and you get the amazon basics clone of that suitcase instead ranked higher uh, maybe with free shipping and so on and so what amazon is able to do and this is the real surveillance capitalism is just spy on its suppliers and then directly compete with them and also sidestep the rules that would otherwise make that an unfair trading practice and that does make it an unfair trading practice for other vendors that might want to do similar things just if they're in the suitcase selling business and so that's where Amazon's sturdy monopoly comes from. It comes from this ever-accelerating flywheel of extraction of monopoly rents, suborning of the rules that prevent the extraction of monopoly rents, using the monopoly rents to do so, right? Paying, paying to suborn those rules, and then reinvesting it in new forms of monopoly that create higher rents, that create more opportunities for suborning the rules, and that, that ultimately allow it to immiserate its workforce, rip off its customers, and destroy its suppliers. Yeah, like it's not not to sound like a philosopher. I mean, I, I do philosophy, but um, it's like you, you don't just have like uh, vertical integration and horizontal integration, like these two types of like uh, capitalist accumulation and monopolization. But you also have like what I'm going to term as like Foucauldian integration. Like you have this surveillance on the supply chain um, and then also on what you know customers are doing and using that inf and using that data in order to build up a monopoly. Yeah. Well, you know, and this is like, this is the, the, the game that was played 40 years ago. This is the trick that was pulled 40 years ago. You know, 40 years ago, the dominant theory of anti-monopoly was political. It was that when, when firms acquired monopolies, that they used them to uh, suborn the regulatory process and uh, to act against the public interest with impunity. And that the most important thing about a monopoly was that it concentrated power into the hands of people who are no better and no worse than anyone else and certainly no, not qualified to make decisions for everyone's life. I mean, there's a, a certain um, kind of Facebook critic who focuses on, on Mark Zuckerberg's uh, obvious and manifest failings. But the problem with Mark Zuckerberg is not merely that he is personally uniquely poorly suited to control the social lives of 2.6 billion people. It's that nobody should have that fucking job, right? No one is qualified to do that job. And, and 40 years ago, the Chicago economists, they uh, pulled this trick. They said, actually, if you stare really hard at the text of American anti-monopoly law, the Clayton Act and the Sherman Act, these late 19th century uh, uh, bills... And you read them really hard, like maybe like QAnon style, like just read every third word or whatever. What you'll find is that what they really intended was not to get rid of monopolies, but only to get rid of the harmful monopolies. And a harmful monopoly is a monopoly that raises prices using its monopoly to do so. 
And all the other kinds of monopolies are efficient monopolies. And this had uh, two really important effects, right? So the first one was it excluded almost everyone in the world from the discussion about monopolies. Because you, as a, as a person, as a citizen, as a moral and ethical actor in the world, as someone who is deserving of human rights, you have a claim on the political outcomes of monopoly. But if we're going to talk about the economic outcomes of a monopoly, if we're going to either prospectively say, well, if we allow this merger, will prices go up? Or retrospectively say, did these prices go up because of this merger? The only way to do that is by using these abstruse mathematical models that economists make and that are wholly disconnected from reality and that are not complicated uh, or not hard to understand because they're complicated, but rather are complicated so they will be hard to understand, so that so that the laity can be excluded from these decisions and from these discussions. And so you have 40 years in which every time something monopolistic was about to happen, you had a kind of court sorcerer who could read the guts of the model and tell you, no, 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 nothing bad will happen as a result of this monopolistic maneuver. And also, whenever anything bad happened in a monopolized market, could once again, you know, slaughter the ritual ox and tell you that the bad thing was not caused by the monopoly. And, and at the same time, because the one thing that a monopolist couldn't do without getting enforced against is immediately raising prices, visibly raising prices, you had this um, incredible ratcheting effect on suppliers, right? Which includes workers, but also includes smaller firms and so on, other entities in their supply chain. Because there, if if the idea is that you're never punished for raising, uh, that you're only punished for raising prices, but not punished for any other way of making a profit, then if you can reduce your costs then anything you do to reduce your costs will always be legal under anti-monopoly law. And so you see worker misclassification as a result of this, and also lots of other dirty tricks to, to, to screw over suppliers, small firms, and so on. And the result of that, or the response to that, that these atomized, smaller entities uh, engage in to try to defend themselves from the monopolist is to create cartels, right? So like, that occurs when you have um, uh, uh, misclassified workers. So the, the truckers who service the port of Los Angeles, who are all misclassified as independent businesses, formed a, a trade association to negotiate for higher wages. Well, if you're a trade association, if you're a cartel that gets together and demands higher prices and price fixes, that's the one thing anti-monopoly law does not permit. That's the, the one thing that you can reliably use anti-monopoly law to shut down. And so one of the entities against whom we've seen anti-monopoly used during the 40-year neoliberal period is truckers, immiserated truckers, who have been misclassified and tried to form a trade union, except they couldn't form a trade union because they weren't employees. So it became a cartel, a trade association. And that trade association was punished under antitrust law. And it's not just truckers, right? You see this in every sector, that monopoly begets monopoly, because the corollary of not being allowed to form a cartel is that you can instead form a monopoly. So the publishers uh, colluded with Apple, the big five, uh, big six publishers colluded with Apple about four years ago to fix prices of eBooks against Amazon, and the FTC just destroyed them for fixing prices. And so now 
there's only four publishers because Random House bought its two largest competitors because it's not collusion if you're all under one roof, if you have the same corporate master. And this is also why our healthcare system is so fucked up. When pharma was allowed to monopolize, they began to gouge hospitals. And so hospitals tried to form cartels to resist pharma, but they were told that if they did that, they would get dinged under antitrust law. And so instead they form monopolies. They began to merge and merge and merge along with doctors' groups. And so the doctors' groups, which had... Uh, monopolized to defend themselves against pharmaceutical companies now began to gouge insurers and so the insurers form monopolies to resist the uh, the the doctors groups in the hospitals and to try and control over billing and uh, over time what happened was that every piece of the sector became monopolized whether that's pharmacy benefit managers or insurers or hospitals or pharmaceutical companies or pharmacies themselves and there's only one unorganized sector left and it's patients. And so if you can extract more from patients, they have no way of inflicting pain on you in retaliation. And they have no way of gathering together except in the political sphere to demand better treatment. And so what you see is a monotonous ratcheting down of the quality of care and ratcheting up of the price of care. And all of that is landing on the patients themselves. And meanwhile, the way that these monopolies are resolving their intra-monopoly conflicts between uh, pharmaceuticals, pharmacies, pharmacy benefit managers, health insurers, doctors, and hospitals is by merging. Right, So now we're seeing vertical monopolies where, for example, CVS is now a pharmaceutical manufacturer, a pharmacy monopolist, and a pharmacy benefit man manager. Uh, and, and so, you know, I'm not saying that, that markets would solve all, all of our problems if they were competitive, but I am saying that you can lay a lot of the harm and immiseration that we experience today at the feet of the fact that we've had 40 years of forbearance for monopolies. Mm -hmm. um, well, like one thing that particularly jumps out in uh, what you're describing, and it's, it's actually kind of funny that you're referring to the, like, math that's used by economists as sorcery, because we get back to that all the time referring to like wall street stuff as like black magic and eldritch sorcery um so i mean really if you threw it in the face of any classical economist it would break their brain by going that shouldn't be possible but um the how much would you say this kind of deliberate mystification is spread across other fields it's like i know like in finance it's pretty much common practice for like say goldman sachs for example to hire like physics phds out of caltech and mit to come up with like clouds of equations that don't actually make sense when you apply them to reality like how much of just the rest of this monopoly like i guess you could say explosion is greased by this same kind of like trickery well you know it's it's i think that there's a lot of it and i think that it's important to realize that um some of these people believe they're bullshit right like a lot of these people are high on their own supply so in some cases they're just hiring hiring them for window dressing right you know i i, I remember i used to write for the sci-fi channels magazine and uh i covered uh the the re the remake of the movie flubber and, uh, you know, I was, a, I was a cub entertainment reporter, and so the only person I could get an interview with was the, the chemist they hired to, to draw equations on the whiteboard in the background. 
Um, and, you know, that's window dressing, right? The chemist liked the fact that, that he had made good chemistry equations and, and you know, he, he thought it was like a cool Easter egg that people who understood chemistry would see that there was like real stuff going on in the background. But it was really just there as kind of window dressing. But there are a lot of people who do believe their own bullshit, right? I mean, there are a lot of people who think that they are actual sorcerers for that matter, right? The world is full of, of people who believe in metaphysics and who think that they can pray for rain and who believe in astrology and so on. And, you know, Dunning-Kruger is an equal opportunity pathology. Like, there are, there are tons of people who do the, the court sorcery thing for... Uh, for economists, for large firms, for finance firms, and so on, who really think that they're balancing risk. I mean, you know, there's a lot of stuff about this after the great financial crisis, about the risk hedging equations that they hired these performance physicists to write, and, um, and, and how the physicists really thought that they had done well by it. And there are a couple of things going on there. So in part, they're just wrong, right? In part, they're just like, it's just hubris. But there's a specific way in which they're wrong, which is the quantitative fallacy. If, if you know, most of our thorniest problems have both a qualitative and a quantitative dimension to them. And computers are really good at operating on quantitative elements, and they're actually incapable of working on qualitative elements. In order to, to ask a computer to model or, or compute or do work, on something qualitative, you first have to quantize it. You can't say it's kind of blue. You have to give it like a hex value or a Pantone value, you know, a specific blue, mm -hmm. but not bluish. I think this is mm -hmm. a really good point for Miss Silver to jump in. Like, uh, Silver sure. talked before about <sighs> the, um, the software um, and computer program is odd problem, where computers are really good, at, as you put it, they're really good on the quantitative side. Like, you know, given enough data and good data at that, and they can get you a very good output. But in terms of the qualitative side, I think there's this hesitancy to engage with like the ideological framework that's required in order to be able to do this sort of stuff well, that we run into this like hard wall of like the software um, is off problem. And do you want to um, go into that, Ms. Silver? Uh, oh, God. Put me on the spot, why don't you? <laughs> <laughs> um... No, I think you covered it. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I, I am um, coming up to the end of my time. I got to go help my kid with her homework. But I, I wanted to, to close that out by, by talking about how, you know, a lot of the times we come a cropper because when you ask a quantitative, uh, someone who's good at quantitative work, to evaluate a problem that has a qualitative element, they incinerate the qualitative element and do work on the like dubious quantitative residue and just assume that it'll be fine. And so it's not just that physicists get right stupid equations that crash economies. Physicists write stupid equations that cause COVID super spreading events, right? Do you remember that in the summer, there was a university, I believe in Ohio, that hired some physicists to build some epidemiological models for them. And they just, they just, you know, they, they came out afterwards and they were like, oh, well, we built the model. Uh, the university will experience a maximum of 12 cases in the first seven months. Um, and, uh, and then they said a bunch of unflattering things about epidemiologists, right? Like, I don't know why it's so hard. Like, it's not interesting work like physics. And then, you know, two weeks later, they shut down the campus with 700 active cases because they, they didn't bother to, like, they, they, there was no place in their model for the possibility that students would want to have eyeball-licking parties. 
And so, you know, it's the same with, with contact tracing apps where they don't distinguish between like you and I coughing into each other's mouths and you and I sitting in adjacent cars in a traffic traffic jam with the windows all rolled up and they treat those as the same exposure. The, the qualitative element isn't just like a nice to have, it's a must have in these models. I think it's like interesting and it ties back into like what you were talking about earlier is that like, it's like the myth of like, the genius part of the evil genius and it's like there's all, all there's also this element of scientism to it where you have this sort of just like invisible religion around technology and science and the ways that it works and and like it's there like there's this spectacle that emphasizes like oh these like algorithms can do magical things these tech geniuses can do magical things but in actuality no like they want to present that image because it gives them more power and don't get me wrong like the stuff that like they're, they're doing in actuality is dangerous, but like at the end of the day, it's just dangerous clown shits. Yeah. Yeah. Like it was, um, I mean, it's like at the end of the day, you know, the smarts are, you know, somebody working for less than minimum wage and the cloud is just someone else's computer. Yeah. That's very well said. <laughs> well, folks, maybe that's, that's a good place to, close it out i i appreciate you you're taking the time to talk with me i'm sorry i i kind of ran my mouth there that's that's uh this is my bread and butter i mean this was a pleasure to have you on like um we would definitely love to have you on again because i mean there's so much to cover here it's like i mean surveillance capitalism and like you know the ways that it engages with the national security state it's just like i mean you've been wrestling with this for a long long time Oh, yeah, for sure. And, you know, again, Amazon, you know, they've got their finger in so many pies that they're a great example here, too. Like, you know, we, we, we try to make this distinction between private and public surveillance. And here you've got Amazon that's got thousands of law enforcement entities that use its uh, surveillance doorbells as uh, warrant-free, uh, off-the-book surveillance grids, you know, those ring doorbells. And those are the same entities that we're hoping will someday make laws uh, limiting Amazon's public, uh, you know, use of, of this private sector surveillance, and you know, the reality is that you can't you can't tease them apart. Yeah, you know, the, the, like the Amazon gets to do it because yeah, like Sorry, the distinction between like the uh, the public and the private, like uh, it's not it's not this hardline distinction that it used to be, you know, a long time ago. It's much more muddled now. I mean, like you know, for like several decades you have you met you had many different like science fiction writers i mean i'm sure you all know who were talking about like you know this like genre of cyberpunk and like what capitalism can like, capitalism could form into and like the fact is we're in that cyberpunk future already like warts and all like the um like one way to put it is that like the cyberpunk dystopia is already here it's just up to us to look to new tools and new weapons to resist it and to build a better world. Well like said. Like I also mentioned before, these guys are kind of a rehash of the old robber barons saying we had stuff with, you know, like Carnegie calling in federal troops to work as strike breakers. So in some ways it's almost, you know, the more things change, the more they or seem the same. 
or Mellon, who is Secretary of the Treasury while simultaneously owning all of the world's aluminum and, and getting the U.S. to get into trade deals with Chile so he could secure all of their aluminum. And then during the war, while he was Secretary of the Treasury, not allowing the U.S. aerospace industry to have any aluminum to build airplanes because he thought that if he dumped that much aluminum into the market, uh, it, would, um, it would cause the price to fall. <laughs> oh, jeez. But, I mean, they, the... the all, robber baron shit is robber baron shit through the ages. The the methods are different and it matters. History doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. But but like, you know, all the same breathtaking hubris that we see now. You know, uh, Jeff Bezos saying no, no Amazon original audio or ebooks will be available in any library. Libraries should just give all of their customers Kindle, all their patrons Kindles and Audible subscriptions. You know, it's just it, it's just like the twenty first century version of this. Anyway, guys, I I gotta go help my daughter. Uh, navigate some tricky math well i hope you oh, it's been i hope that great goes well it was a pleasure to have you on yeah it's been great having you on and uh hopefully we'll get another chance to touch base and likewise yeah um yeah pleasure to have you on hopefully we can resume this conversation again soon and um you know, I'm signing off. I'm Harley Quinn. We do this shit so you don't have to. And, you know, my fellow co-hosts are... Dr. Spider. Miss Silver. Bye, everyone.